This episode is brought to you by Mustard Seed Communities, providing a loving home to abandoned children with disabilities in Jamaica and around the world. Your support to Mustard Seed provides food, medicine, therapy, and lifelong loving care for the most vulnerable. Please make a donation today at mustardseed.com. Welcome to Inside the Vatican with America Media. Each week, veteran Vatican reporter Gerard O'Connell and I take you behind the headlines for an intergenerational conversation about the biggest stories out of the Vatican. This week, we're covering how the Vatican is facing the challenges of gradually reopening and dealing with decreased income while still trying to be a humanitarian and diplomatic center of the worldwide coronavirus response. I'm Colleen Dully. This is Inside the Vatican. Good morning from New York City, Jerry. Good afternoon from sunny Rome, Colleen. How are things going in Italy? Well, yesterday, May 18th, many shops, bars, restaurants opened. But it's kind of a surreal atmosphere here because the the restaurants are open, but you can count in one hand the number of clients that I've seen in restaurants near me. That's such a surprising view for Rome. I mean, the sidewalk cafes are always covered up. Um, That brings us right into our first story, actually, which is about uh, masses uh, resuming in Italy. So public masses resumed with certain social distancing and sanitation guidelines. We talked about those last week. Um, They started on Monday. So we don't have the big Sunday mass crowd numbers to go off of. But uh, I was wondering if you had any numbers about, you know, what what was mass attendance like yesterday? Well, I think it was rather sparse. for example, the cathedral in Milan, the Duomo, it opened yesterday and the mass in the morning, I don't know, there are 20 people. And it was closed since uh, February 23. Of course, um, Milan, Lombardy, the region, uh, has been the worst hit of all. More than half the deaths have happened up in the region. Milan in recent times has also suffered greatly. So uh, it, it's not a real indicator. Other places in the country, we don't have any statistics, any details. They have opened, but I, I've seen a church uh, near here, near where I am, and uh, I haven't seen even people going in. Mm-hmm. You did take a walk down to St. Peter's Basilica uh, yesterday, which also just reopened. What was that like? Well, we went down to, uh, Elizabeth and I, my wife, we went down to St. Peter's to see what the situation was like. They had sanitized the basilica over the weekend. And uh, yesterday morning, Pope Francis celebrated his last live-streamed Mass on the centenary of the birth of John Paul II. And as you saw perhaps from my story, or perhaps photos, uh, more than 100 people attended that. Right. I was really surprised at the size of the crowd. Yeah. They were all social distancing, we should we should say. They were sitting pretty far apart. They were all social distancing, then communion in the hand, and no kiss of peace. Uh, quite strict r- r- regulations laid down by the Italian Bishops' Conference, and the, and the Vatican follows that. Mm-hmm. Uh, secondly, we, we went in the afternoon about five o'clock. Normally, to, you have to queue to go into the basilica because you have to go through security controls. And prior to the pandemic, you, you could be waiting for an hour, two hours to get in. Yesterday, we moved within a half an hour. 
but keeping two meter distance from the person in front of you. And then we had to go through a thermoscanner. So they put this thing to our forehead and they, they tested where we under 37.5 degrees uh, Celsius. And once you'd got through that, then you had to wind your way up to the security and went through security and then into the basilica. Rarely have I seen the basilica so empty. I think um, if there were 200 people, certainly not 200, I would say, maybe 100 or something, a lot of people gathered around the tomb of John Paul II, praying with masks, uh, some kneeling, some standing. Uh, it was impressive. But you got the feel that, you know, this new normality is really abnormal. Right, definitely. You mentioned that the last mass of Pope Francis's live streams, uh, live stream daily masses, was broadcast yesterday from St. Peter's, from the tomb of John Paul II. Um, now, this the celebration of the centenary of John Paul II's birth was sort of marred by this new uh, documentary that came out in Poland. Can you tell me briefly about what happened there? Well, this was a do documentary that came out on Saturday evening, I think. Anyway, on the eve of uh, the celebration, made a big celebration in Poland for the centenary of John Paul II. And uh, it, it told the story of uh, two brothers who had been abused and who had tried, who had confronted the, their abuser and really blaming also the Polish bishop for not acting. And immediately after the documentary came out, the primate of Poland kind of told a group of journalists and also made a statement public. He said, we, we haven't dealt with this well. We will have to ask Pope Francis to uh, send a visitor to look at the abuse question in Poland. I think there have been about 400 priests have been uh, alleged to have abused uh, children, young people. Got it. So we will keep our listeners up to date on um, how that investigation or that, that visit into Poland ends up playing out, as well as the ongoing reopening of Italy here on Inside the Vatican. So for our second story, uh, even as parts of the Vatican slowly start to reopen, the Vatican is facing some difficult budget decisions that they have to make as a result of the crisis. Uh, Father Juan Antonio Guerrero, who is a Jesuit, he's the new head of the Vatican's Dicastery for Finances, he said that reports that the Vatican is going to default are not true, but that the Vatican is preparing for a decrease in income that's kind of hard to quantify right now. There's a lot that's uncertain. Um, so, Jerry, I'm, I'm wondering, what did Father Guerrero say about how the Vatican's going to try to respond to this decrease in income? Well, the he explained, first of all, that there were five sources of income for the Vatican. And I, I've outlined that in my article. Uh, first of all, uh, from the Peter's Pence, the collection for the, uh, for the Pope, uh, for his ministry, his work, and work of charity, too. Secondly, from each diocese in the world, according to canon law, is supposed to make a contribution to the central government of the church. And, of course, according to the possibilities and means, some obviously cannot give anything, but that's a second source. A third source of income is the from the governorate of the Vatican City State, which really means basically the museums, 
the selling of stamps, the printing of coins, etc. The fourth one was the, of course, the, the Vatican Bank, uh, the Institute for the Works of Religion. That normally would make some profit during the year on running the running accounts, etc., and ministering accounts and business transfers, and it would always so make a contribution. Then there were another big sector of income came from the properties, the real estate that the Vatican owns. But some of the real estate is rented to employees, lay employees of the Vatican and also some clerics. Uh, But because of the fact that everybody is watching the the pence, the cents, as it were, they have uh, given a little reduction on the rents. So that means there's less money to come in. It sounds like the uh, income would be down from from all of those sources, right? Yes, and the other source of income is the investments. Vatican has investments in Paris, in uh, Switzerland, in London. But uh, everybody will tell you today investments are not producing great dividends. Mm -hmm. So what's the Vatican doing in response to this? Well, two things. First of all, the head of every department has been instructed, cut everything that is not essential now. You cut travel, cut consultancies, you don't hire new people, you cut overtime, and so on. And you cut any expenditure. For example, if you wanted to redecorate your office, etc., unless it's absolutely essential, you put it off to next year. That's the first thing. And then secondly, so they've got to reduce their budget as much as possible, and so make some savings. And secondly, they have to budget for next year, starting from zero, as it were, a zero-based budget, which means, in simple terms, you have to prepare your budget for your department, not based on past practice, that you did this for years and years and years. You have to base it on what is absolutely essential for you to do today. Mm -hmm. Anything else does not enter into the budget. Does that mean laying off employees or or not renewing employees? Well, this is the big question, because up to now, uh, Pope Francis has been insistent that in the reform of the Vatican, you didn't lay off people. But the question now, and many people are saying this is one that has to be faced, is if the income does not come, they may well be forced to do this, because the alternative is to sell property. But as I see in Rome today, we see now lots of signs going up to let for sale. So it's a buyer's market today, not a seller's market. And so the Vatican will not really want to do that if at all possible. So at that point, they will have to look carefully at the almost 5,000 people that are working. There's under 3,000 working in the Roman Curia and about another 2,000 working in the governorate of whom 1,000 in the Vatican museums. And they will have to look closely. So people who are near retirement, maybe they'll be offered a kind of a golden handshake to retire early. I don't know. They haven't outlined this. But what they have said is you have to write a budget justifying only what is essential. That's for the next year's budget. And that's going to be painful. Right. I wanted to ask you a little bit about this because it seems like this kind of rebuilding of the budget from zero has the potential to bring about kind of a big shift in how the Vatican operates. You know, this is 
I feel like we should contextualize this by saying that it was only within the last couple of years that every Vatican office had to start even submitting a budget, right? So I'm wondering if you see this as as the potential to be a turning point in, in Vatican finance and in the way the Vatican operates. It could well be. Nobody has really got the crystal ball, but you're quite right. It's only under when much maligned Cardinal Pell, he, he really insisted that every Every department had to have a budget. He met a lot of resistance, but this has happened. Now, Father Guerrero is really taking this step, moving forward with this and saying, we have to have a budget, but we also have to have justification for whether this particular project, this particular work, this particular event is really essential. Um, We should say, as the Vatican is working to uh, kind of reevaluate, one of the things that they've made clear that they consider essential and that they don't want to cut is is money for the poor. Um, Father Guerrero said, and you quoted this in your article, that there will be no cutting of funds to those most in need. He said, we don't live to save the budget, right? So this remains a priority for the Vatican. Absolutely, Colleen. And the, the Pope has made very clear, the money the church has is the money for the poor. And these are the priority. So we'll keep our listeners up to date on what happens with the reorganization of Vatican finance and whether this ends up being a turning point like we talked about here on Inside the Vatican. For our last story, uh, as the Vatican is working to evaluate what is most essential to its operations, one thing that has been given a priority, at least for the time being, is the coronavirus task force. Um, Jerry, you wrote up that we just had our first update from that task force. It focused on a number of topics, but your story started with hunger, and I want to start with that in our conversation today. Um, What did the task force have to say about hunger? Well, it said that uh, even before the pandemic, 800 million people in the world were on the brink of hunger, some suffering famine, many greatly undernourished. So already before the pandemic, hunger was a real problem in the world, but people were trying to avoid seeing it. It was a kind of a problem, but it was being covered up. And I I heard many people saying, you know, uh, this capitalism, this system we've got today, we have less hungry people with less poor people in the world. But when you still have 800 million, you have a big, big problem in your system. And now what the coronavirus task force, the Vatican task force has has brought to light is that the coronavirus has increased the hunger because places like South Africa, places like India, where you have so many people living on a day-to-day budget, that they get paid for the job they do in a day and they don't have no security, no salary, no permanent wage, no healthcare, anything, and they're suddenly told stay at home. And so the team, the Vatican task force, was highlighting that so many of the people in this condition are risking hunger, risking not having enough to eat. And the church and you had at the this meeting, this press conference, which I followed on the internet uh, streaming, uh, you had Aloysius John, who's an Indian-born head of Caritas International. He said, 
in India, the church through Caritas is providing, bringing meals to these people in their homes so that they don't have to come out. The same is true in South Africa, he says. He said, we have a situation in South Africa where the queue, they're queuing up outside our office for food and we run out of food. We don't have enough to give them. Right. So that task force is working closely with Caritas uh, in order to give humanitarian aid in all of these areas, right? It's one of the, they have five commissions, and one of the commissions is the humanitarian commission, which Caritas is really playing the lead role in. Mm -hmm. Now, obviously, this issue of poverty and hunger is exacerbated, especially in like areas where there is ongoing war and violent conflict. And you asked at this press conference, you wrote this in your story, about, uh, you know, the Pope's call to end conflicts and to redirect military funding into uh, humanitarian and also just like social services. Um, what did they say that the follow-up on that looks like? Well, they said, I, I asked about two situations. One was the Yemen. Yemen is really one of the worst situations today because so many of the people, maybe 80% are on the poverty line. And the, the, conf the war is going on and it is involving uh, Saudi Arabia, United Arab Emirates, where the Pope was and where he, we visited, uh, we reported on, remember, uh, Iran, but also the big powers. And the arms keep coming in and the people are hungry. Right. There was a, an actual famine there caused by this conflict. And now the big risk is that, that the uh, COVID-19 has reached there. Mm. And so uh, the United Nations Secretary General, the Pope, as a lot of other leaders have said, please have a moratorium at least on the on the fighting. Stop it so that medical aid and food can get in. But, uh, you know, the quest for power and control seems to override everything. Then, you know, when you see, again, I, I took the, I asked a question about the Democratic Republic of the Congo, where it's a country so rich in rare minerals. The one, the Colton goes to the, the computers and the cell phones and all this. There's a big battle between groups for control of the areas where these rich minerals, also gold, diamonds, all this. But the conflict keeps going on. The United Nations has troops there. And Cardinal Turkson, in response to my question, said, the, the answer is for the United Nations troops to be given the power to intervene. They have not been given that authority. And so the conflict goes on, people die. And now with the virus, the situation is a major, major risk to all involved. Sounds like he sees this as a task for the diplomatic kind of side of this uh, coronavirus task force. We should also say, like, these these conflicts then uh, lead to more people being displaced. Um, and we saw the Pope speak out this week in his World Day of Migrants and Refugees message. He actually, he usually says kind of the same four things and, and elaborates on them in different ways uh, about migrants and refugees. He always stresses that we need to welcome them, protect them. Uh, promote their place in society and integrate them into society. Uh, but he actually expanded on this in his World Day of Migrants and Refugees message, which I want us to mention here. Um, these all emphasized closeness. He he added on to these four words that he usually says, these three pairs. He says, we need to know migrants in order to understand them. We need to be close to them in order to serve them. And we need to listen to them in order to reconcile these conflicts. Um, so all of these Again, providing an emphasis on closeness that I think 
was kind of striking uh, given, you know, not to use a cliche, but like given the distance that we're all having kind of imposed on us. It's, it's again, this emphasis on solidarity and closeness that we've been seeing come out of the Vatican quite a lot in these days. Colleen, you're absolutely right. You're talking about 51 million people in 61 countries who have been displaced. Mm -hmm. That means they haven't left their own country, but they've been forced to leave their homes, their places of residence. Right, internally displaced. Internally displaced. And and the Pope says, uh, you know, these are invisible in the midst of all the, the, the problems we have. But he said, coronavirus is one. It's a very big problem, but it cannot eclipse totally all the other crises we have. Hunger, the displaced people, the conflicts. And so really, it's a call for a, a, a reorganization of the world. Jerry, um, you mentioned, you know, that this this task force kind of has a central part in uh, sort of helping to shape that that future world, or at least the Vatican would really like it to. Um how how long can we expect this task force to last, and and how often can we expect to hear from it? Well, the task force, uh, Cardinal Turkson said, it has a, a present. It's got a one year lifespan, but that could be extended, and they expect it to give regular updates. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, we will keep our listeners up to date uh, here on Inside the Vatican on you know how the Vatican continues to respond to the coronavirus pandemic and also uh, how how they're looking to prioritize uh, migrants, refugees, and the poor in in terms of shaping what society is going to look like as we emerge from this. Jerry, I really appreciate the chance to talk to you about all of this. Uh, thanks for taking the time to talk to me today. Thank you very much, Colleen. And I hope things improve in New York and in the United States. Oh, goodness, me too. Inside the Vatican is a production of America Media. This week's episode was produced by Tucker Redding. Inside the Vatican is mixed by Noah Levinson. You can find in-depth and up-to-date Vatican coverage at americamagazine.org or follow us on Twitter at I-N-S-D-E Vatican Pod. That's inside without the second I. You can also email us your questions at insidethevatican at americamedia.org. For America Media with Gerard O'Connell, I'm your host and producer, Colleen Deli. We'll see you next time. 